In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And recently we've been talking about the market conditions as well as last week, we did our crash course in uh, crashes, market crashes throughout history. So today we wanted to take this full circle and just give you some ideas. And by that, I mean, what would we do or what do we do in practice to find solutions for our clients that come to us and say, okay, you've given us all this data about where you think the market is, where you think the market's going interpret it for me. What does that mean and where do we go? Yeah, so we'll kind of take you behind the scenes and we'll tell you about how we use the big wheel. Is this wheel I got set up in the back office? You just spin it and whatever it lands on, that's what you do. Oh yeah, and tell them about the monkey that we own that throws the darts at the wheel. Uh, we can no longer afford the monkey because of inflation. Oh, I guess he was cutting the last round of uh, layoffs, eh? So anyways, uh, talk like this comes with a big disclaimer. Of course, even though we do this professionally, this is not and should not be considered as personal advice. In order to give you advice, we need to be sitting across the table from you, find out all about your personal situation, your specific ins and outs and what you're doing. So please don't take anything as this is what you should do without speaking to a qualified professional advisor and preferably one that's been doing this for a good long time. Yeah, we want to give you just some general things to look at, things to consider when you're doing your own research, and just to kind of give you something else to ask questions about so you have a better understanding about how this whole process can work. But yeah, everyone is different. You have different needs, different things you want your money to do. But these are just a few quick tips that we have for you today. Right. So these ideas for us are kind of what's missing in this conversation, because like I said, a lot of people, a lot of analysts will love to give you their insight. But then when it comes time to put it all together and tie it with a bow, you don't really get very far. You're kind of left on your own going, OK, well, this is bad, but now what? So like I said, don't take this personally, but please take it with a grain of salt 
talk to your qualified advisor, do your own backend research and all of that. So in order to make this a little bit more interesting, we are going to start with the riskiest options and then we're going to move our way backwards to the more secure options. And that's just to detail, like I said, the wide range of clients that we talk to throughout these different circumstances. So even through this kind of preamble, you can kind of tell that we don't have a one cut, one size solution for everyone who walks in our door. We have several variations that scan a spectrum. So that's what we're going to try and show you today. Okay, so counting down from riskiest to least, uh, let's start with stocks. Stocks are not a bad thing. It's all in what you look for. Exactly. So there's a couple things people tend to look for. Usually someone will look at a chart and look at which everyone is just growing the highest because, hey, it'll never crash or whatever company is in the news most often or your favorite site like Seeking Alpha. Which company has 13 new articles today? That's the one to buy. Oh my goodness, this takes me back to a former client that we'd had that um, literally whenever the markets would underperform, he would literally pull up his local indexes and find whatever index had performed really, really well during this period of time, come to us and say, well, why wasn't I invested in that? And we'd have to say, sorry, Mr. Client, you know, <laughs> that's a small cap index. That's a currency exchange. That's, you know, all these different things that were completely outside of his risk tolerance, but it was very much that performance bias. So he was measuring success based on the latest, greatest thing right now and how its return compared to literally everything else where anyone who's been doing this for any length of time, probably even you sitting there listening to this now can tell that individual that that's just not how this works. Yeah, hindsight doesn't work. And comparing apples to pumpkins doesn't work either. Or apples to skyscrapers, how it usually ends up being. Oh my goodness, it's a, it's a funny thing. So like I was trying to say, so it's not just whatever is the hot new thing of the week, which is the one that has the most articles. Like I said, well, full disclosure, I used to be one of those people contributing to Seek and Alpha, but I tended to avoid those big companies. I tended to go for the background companies, the boring ones in the background with a low beta and a good dividend. And this is where people tend to miss out. They tend to undervalue the boring stocks. Like look in your pantry right now you probably have a can of like Campbell's mushroom or tomato soup. But what you don't realize is that is a boring low beta stock that is outperforming the bulk of the stuff on the NASDAQ and the Dow right now. So why don't you tell everybody listening what a low beta stock is? Well, a beta stock is a really passive one that waits for an alpha to tell it what to do. <laughs> oh my goodness. We know that's not the actual definition. So why don't you uh, give us the, the Investopedia version? <laughs> okay. The real answer though is uh, beta is a way to measure an individual stocks or even a fund's volatility compared to its connected index. So if it's an American fund, it'd be judged against uh, S&P or NASDAQ. If it's a Canadian fund, it'd be judged up against TSX or even one of its uh, sub-indexes for sector specific. So essentially, it goes from like a negative one to all the way up to two typically. 
So one is your baseline. It is matching the movements of the index perfectly. Anything below one means it's not moving to the same degree. It could still be going up or not or down, but it's not fluctuating at the same rate. And flip side, if it's anything over one, its highs and lows are happening a lot more often than its parent index. So really, beta is a way of just measuring how much more or less does this stock move around? And again, separate conversation than actual growth of the underlying share, but how much does it move around? How volatile is it as compared to its index? Yeah, and this it can get interesting here where some people look at it and they'll want like a really aggressive, fast moving stock. So they'll try and pick things with a higher beta relative to their index, especially if the index is something like basic S&P or Dow. NASDAQ gets a bit more complicated because of it's just the NASDAQ. But at the same time, a lot of people will look for a low beta because they want something with solid growth that will grow and outperform the index, or at the very least, it'll end up in the same place within a year, but it won't go up and down so much. That's right. So it's kind of talking more to how smooth is your ride, right? Are you hitting every speed bump? Are you going up and down all these little foothills or massive hills, or are you kind of just smoothly sailing along, or at the very least, just having some minor turbulence? Yeah, a lot of people tend to undervalue these low beta stocks. Uh, in the description, I'm going to link to a paper done from the Harvard School of Business, where they track these low beta stocks in a time period between 1968 and 2020. And what they found was these low volatility, boring low beta stocks actually outperformed all of the high risk portfolios they were tracking. They found a uh, dollar invested in these low beta stocks and portfolios grew to $81 during this time frame, while that same dollar sent to these high beta, high risk stocks only grew to $9.76. Let me say that again. That is low volatility, a dollar turned to $81.66 and high volatility turned from $1 to $9.76. Those numbers are pretty incredible. And to have it kind of end out in that way, there must have been some pretty serious ups and downs. But in the regular course of events, I mean, the market does have some very serious ups and downs. And the biggest risk, or I think what a lot of people feel like their biggest risk is that erosion of value. No one likes to see themselves dropping below either their initial investment or or feeling like they underperformed, especially when they feel like, in your example with high beta stocks, they took higher risk. So essentially what you're saying is that risk and return is not always correlated in the traditional sense that we might understand. So maybe explain a little bit more about how the market price of each security is independent of the beta. Well, that's just part of the story because you can't just say that like all low beta stocks are performing great. Like even just prepping for this today, I did some digging and I found like, so on the American side, boring companies like Tyson Food, Clorox Company, Allstate, Merrick on the health side, Campbell, Toyota, Walmart, McDonald's, these are all low beta stocks doing really, really well right now. But at the same time, I found probably twice as many that are doing exceptionally poor right now. So it's trying to find that mix between the two. And okay, just for clarity's sake, I'll give you the Canadian side, like companies like CCL, CP Rail, Loblaw, Empire, uh, Thompson, Reuters, Fortis, and Hydro One. Again, these are all low beta, 
Like I think they all have dividend and they're doing well this year, but I can, I can find you an even bigger list of low beta stocks doing poorly. It's knowing which industries to pick. This is just sort of like a starting point to when you're looking at funds as a whole and individual companies that beta is something you should be paying attention to because it'll show you how it's going to track. And depending where the market is, you may want higher or lower. And the last thing I can say before we move on from stocks is dividends are a very good thing. I know a lot of people downplay it or they just want stocks that just go up and down and try and sell in the high. But if you're putting money into these investments, always go for something with dividend because whether the stock was up or down, 99% of the time you're getting that dividend, no matter what the share price is doing, unless it's something cataclysmic in the whole sector. But the vast majority of companies, you'll be getting that whatever dividend is every quarter, whether your price is up and down. And this is even more important where you're looking at companies in like a seg fund, because those dividends will help them in the rougher patches right now. Yeah, I think when dividend paying stocks get or dividend paying companies get overlooked, it's because people typically feel that there's going to be higher growth options available. But that being said, you have to look at like Cam just alluded to, the net overall gain and also where we are in the market cycle. Yeah. And there's a very good reason why when I've looked at so many seg funds lately and the top 10 holdings, 99% of the time they've got dividends because the fund managers know better and that's where they're looking forward to. You just increase the value of these funds. Oh, absolutely. And you know that that's by design. So let's move on now. Let's say someone is not comfortable being in the stock market right now. And honestly, can't blame them, right? It's been a pretty wild ride. Just looking at the beginning of this year till now, I think, oh man, what was the stat on that? This has been like the worst start of the year in like 40 years or something along those lines. Sorry if that's not quite correct. I don't have it in front of me, but um, it's been a bad one. So a lot of people have really had a test to their risk tolerance where they're essentially saying, ooh, there's the gut check. I'm not as comfortable as I thought I was going to be riding these ups and downs. Yeah. And to kind of call back to a couple episodes ago where you're kind of meeting with your advisor, this is why the risk tolerance questionnaires are done in the first place. It's not to see how much fun you can have in the bull market. It's how well you can sleep at night when things are happening like they are right now. That's a very good point. So for people that say, I don't want this anymore, this is just not working for me. I haven't had a good night's sleep in weeks. Um, let me get out of the market or I don't want to be in the market in the future after this is recovered, but I'm not happy with GIC returns. I feel like GIC returns are going to be losing me money to inflation. And honestly, if I can't keep up, What's the point? Why am I not just sticking this under my mattress? So there is a solution to that. It's called Equity Link GICs. These are products that are available. I mean, we have them on offering. Banks and things like that will offer them too. But if you look under the hood, it's actually a very different product or in terms of some of the the finer print in and what you'll actually get out of it and how much you'll participate in it, and also what it's tracking. So the ones that we like will track specific securities in the same category. So we can do some back-end looking and the stocks that are involved, whereas I've seen some offered by banks where they essentially just follow index A, index B, index C, 
as it might be. The other thing to really pay attention to if this is something that you're interested in is a thing called participation rate. And that basically says how much of how your how well your index or your underlying securities performance will you actually get. And if it's anything under than 100%, you're kind of getting taken for a little bit of a ride there. Uh, the ones that we have are 100% or even more. And that can be done through the overall strategy that I can explain a little bit in greater detail. Yeah, there's a reason why this is kind of number two on the list. It's essentially a hybrid between like a standard GIC and uh, hedge trading, I guess you can call it, right? Yeah, it is a call option strategy. Um, call options, whether they're being bought or sold, is something that we've been seeing an increasing amount of fund managers look into to kind of, like you said, hedge their bets a little bit so that regardless of the direction of the underlying security or index, you can kind of predetermine that you're going to be covered to a certain extent. Yeah. So let's say you spent a little too much time on like our Wall Street bets. You want your stocks to go burr, but you don't want to deal with covering the losses and the shorts. This is sort of a backdoor way to play that game. It really is. You know, it's a funny thing. So let me explain really quickly the mechanics of it and also who this is for. So each company that offers these things is going to do it a little bit differently. So I'm only going to speak to the company that we use and how they kind of handle it. But what they do is essentially they will have a whole bunch of investors in a campaign together. And each campaign is divided out by sector, typically. So you can look at things like consumer staples is really popular right now. Uh, you can look at things more globally, like there's global financials, there's global opportunities, and every campaign has a different set of offerings. And in that offering, there's a list, it might be around 12 to 20 different companies that will be in that what they call basket. So what you're really investing in <laughs> is actually not those securities, but the option to buy those securities. So let me explain because this gets a little bit complicated. Essentially, what they do is they pay a premium to have the right, but not the obligation, to buy a security on a specific date at a specific price. Now, by taking both sides of the trade, so both as the person with the right to buy and as the person who's also selling, who's getting paid a premium for that, they can essentially set a target range. The risk to the investor in this particular structure is fairly limited, and that's because they know within a predetermined range of how much they will either win or lose on this trade. And for the products that have some minimums that are guaranteed on them, they'll use bonds, typically corporate bonds. So we know that those bonds are going to have regular coupons being paid, and that'll make up the minimum. But there's also the ability to do more. So why would anyone buy this? That sounded way overly complicated for, for, what, it, uh, for what it actually was. It gives the investor the right to participate in the gains if things go well, but it also gives them the right to walk away from the table if the underlying investments don't do well. And to be very honest, 
in times like this, sometimes people prefer that right to be able to just walk away better than having that actual security in their hands, whether it's a fund or an individual stock, that they now have a loss. So it's trying to take a portion of risk, a portion of losses off the table. And these campaigns that we see, some of them have a 0% guaranteed return, but some will have a minimum. So really what the investor is doing is they're comparing the 0% return to a GIC. Okay, the GIC might look better, but then you're comparing the upside potential versus, of course, the GIC will only be what the GIC offers. This product kind of hits kind of halfway between the two. It's people who typically would go the GIC route, but they just don't like the returns that are coming. It's getting better. Like I remember a few months ago, what the main care reuse so was like 2%, but I think it's getting close to five now. But even then, that just doesn't seem like enough with inflation going right now. So some people will go this route with this hybrid option to try and get a bit more return out while still having some of the protection of a GIC. So maybe we should just jump right into GIC and how it plays into like a lower risk option. Absolutely. And if we're running our way down the scale, GICs are next. GICs are really the only thing that is essentially taking you out of that market risk position. Now, GICs have a different kind of risk attached to them. So there's always risk of default. That's why sometimes people like government-issued GICs because they know, okay, that's that's good. There's also an organization called the CIDC that will guarantee a minimum amount. It's usually up to $100,000 in the event of a default. But that being said, GICs don't go up and down. They're not actively traded in the same way as bonds are. So for that reason, they carry less risk. So a bond portfolio could be down 12, 13, 14, 15% on the year this year. Which we have seen. Which we have sadly seen. But your GICs will just be riding on and trucking right on through with whatever coupon rate you agreed to for whatever term you agreed to at the onset. And like I said, unless the underlying issuer defaults, you're pretty good. So just make sure that you're finding an issuer that is stable and secure and someone that you would trust or a company or an institution that you would trust. Or an institution that actually has an office with a working phone number. And of course, when we're talking about low risk or no risk, there are always going to be people in these types of market cycles that just want to go back to cash. They just want to stick it under their mattress. Or they may want to purchase cash from another country. A couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of, like even just on Reddit, a lot of chatting going back and forth about how Canadians can pick up some euros, they can get some dollars cheap because the euro and the US dollar are at parity well. So there was this huge spree of trying to snatch up those currencies. Or commodities or things like real estate for people that have a bit more money. There are always alternate investments that people are going to be looking into, especially when yield gets a little bit hard to find. Oh yeah, exactly. So I think like so like you said, cash, real estate, eight bit images of a dog, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, so we've got GICs taken care of. So that is the commit to three to five years, get your couple percentage points and just not worry about anything. So we've kind of covered these different risk categories, but what happens if you look at your stuff, your funds are down, how should we be reacting? I know we touched a bit on this last week, but I think we can talk a bit more about it now. 
Oh, sure. Especially since we're kind of in the what to do about it stage, right? And the what to do about it stage has to go along hand in hand with the when to do something about it stage. And that's really what this conversation is about. If your funds are down, that's the big question. Do you need to do something now? Or can you wait it out? And I mean, that goes back to time horizon. We typically, there's no real rhyme or science to this, but uh, we typically use five years as, as a basic threshold of, will you need this money in five years? And if not, if everything else is kind of on track, then it might be worth it to hang on a little bit longer. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with waiting it out in a down market. In fact, this is such conventional wisdom. It's it's kind of ingrown in people's brains here where people say, "Okay, I don't want to I don't want to sell at a loss. I don't want to sell at a loss." But I will temper that with um there can be bad companies. There can be sectors that will underperform. There can be, I mean, geez, geography, let's you know, talk about war and things that are going on in supply chain and things like that that can have an impact as well. Currency, all of the other reasons why also have to line up. Yeah. And it can sometimes just be a couple companies having troubles. Like I just broke down a whole bunch of, what did, what, 17 or 18 fund surveys a couple weeks ago for our staff. And I ran into a bunch, this is all from the same carrier. So you can essentially see a lot of the same companies pop up into these different carriers. And a lot of individual funds were down. And one of the big culprits was Microsoft. And they're just kind of being beaten to death by the NASDAQ as a whole, where it's still performing well. It's still, revenues are growing. They're doing a whole bunch of acquisitions on the gaming side. They're healthy, but just the way the market is, their stock is being pummeled. And we've got a bunch of funds that are suffering because of that. That's just one example where you have of like a good company and just circumstances beyond its control, it's hurting its price. So some people may sell at this point and then when things get back better, they may have lost some growth because they just saw something was down, so they assumed it was bad. Well, this kind of goes full circle to your beta conversation as well, right? And to to the reality that in some cases, the markets or indexes can appear to pull otherwise good stocks down. Well, exactly. And like something we've talked about a lot last few weeks was how look at consumer staples, that's going to be good for the recession. But at the same time, when recession's over, that won't be the hot ticket anymore. Or even a couple months ago, people were going gung-ho on energy companies and the prices they hit in May, June justified it. But now all of a sudden those prices are starting to crash again. So it's being sensitive to these different sectors and issues that are going on where, yeah, there's a time to hold, there's a time to sell. But understanding why these things are going up and down is going to inform those decisions. And these are things you need to really talk to your advisor about, find out where are the gremlins in this fund that are causing the problems. And if there's enough of those gremlins, then yeah, dump the fund, switch over something else. That's something we've been doing with a lot of people, taking them out of funds we think is, they've peaked, they probably won't grow, so we are putting them somewhere else. But there's other people where it's, okay, there's a couple bad companies, fundamentals here, let's wait this out for a year and it should improve. That's exactly it. And I'd also like to say, I mean, this is less attractive as as far as conversation go, but um, I often hear people in conversation when I bring up things like emergency funds, keeping money in cash, that they'll say, oh, I don't need one of those. I have access to credit. 
And then Rogers Network goes down again for the second time in two years and you can't use your credit. Oh, gee. Well, <laughs> that's not even what I meant. I meant um, I have access to a home equity line of credit or I have access to a credit card or I have access to whatever it might be. Why would I hold cash because it's not going to do anything for me. And my argument is, this is exactly why. Because all you need is a bad couple months, or I mean, in this case, we're coming up to a bad seven, eight months. But um, all you need is a surprise bad period. And if you don't have somewhere to grab cash from, and you need money, you know, you don't want to have your hand forced unnecessarily. So Typically, having an emergency fund, this is definitely all the way down at the bottom on the low risk scale, but it is a good thing to have. I mean, the real conversation that you need to have with yourself or with your partner or as it may be, the powers that be, is just how much are you comfortable with. It's the conversation of how much cash would take off the edge from an unexpected purchase in a bad market cycle versus how much is too much cash where now I'm losing out long-term potential growth. Yeah. And this is where your TFSA really comes in handy, whether you've got it in stocks or we got one carrier that can do like a 1.25 high interest savings account. It's just having somewhere where you do have some money stocked where you can get pretty quick. Although TFSAs are not always my favorite place to put those things. All right. So that was our little quick ride down the risk scale from looking at stocks to equity linked GICs to traditional GICs to even just cash in your emergency fund, which can kind of take the sting off in an otherwise troubling or troubled time in, uh, in investments. So if you want someone to take a look, if you have any questions about what's lurking behind the scenes in the funds that you hold in your investment portfolio, and, you know, it's never really been clarified for you, feel free to give us a call. You can always reach out to us at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com, or by email. Contact is on our website. We're always happy to hear from you. And if we can help in any way, we'd be glad to do that as well. So until next time, take care. And spin that wheel. And all the best. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.